3: Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring and will hopefully leave you truly inspired as well. My goal on this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell or who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story hopefully get inspired myself and just maybe, just perhaps, inspire you too. My guest today, singer, songwriter, all-around incredible musician, Ray Thistlethwaite formerly of Thirsty Merck. He's on Twitter, at IamSonRay, R-A-I. It's all one word. It's a great interview about uh, what it's like to achieve enormous success at a very young age and then have humility thrust upon him in no uncertain terms. More about, more about Ray in a moment. Uh, what's going on with me? I'm in Amsterdam again. Um, you'll hear the sound of the trams going by. I'm going to school here, it's really interesting, it's a really fascinating city, and I've talked about this before, but I've really been affected by seeing how this society exists. Um, it's just so different to what I grew up with in Brisbane and what I see in a, what I saw in Sydney and certainly what I live in in Los Angeles. Um, the way this society exists and, and, and just its openness as a society, also its efficiency as a society. I mean, going back to LA between now and the last time that I was here in Amsterdam, I was just so completely struck by the enormous overconsumption that exists in LA, the colossal waste of energy that sustains everyday life, They're just how much they're running at a deficit of energy. I mean, it's a culture completely built around cars, sitting in the 405, which is a freeway that runs across the San Fernando Valley from Los Angeles up over the pass into the valley. I'll be there at a standstill, with 10 lanes of cars going in each direction, none of them moving, All of them with one passenger, all of them idling, just burning precious dinosaur juice every single second for no reason except to act as a gigantic generator to power the USB port that charges their phone while they're tindering. I mean, there's got to be a better way to go about it. I don't know what that better way is, but there's got to be one. There really does. Uh, I was here on the weekend for uh, King's Day, which is basically the King's birthday weekend. The whole city dresses in orange celebrates in the customary western style that is to stay completely drunk all day long just start hammering booze from about 11 a.m and uh, be peeing in the streets by four p.m now as you know i talked about this on the show i don't drink anymore but it did make me reflect on the way i used to drink and um yeah i was certainly one of those guys more than once in my life i'm not now i'm very grateful for that but I had a fantastic day. I went out on a boat on the canals. I was invited by one of the uh, one of the locals here to go out on a boat on the canals. It was super fun. And then I went to a street party where all kinds of shenanigans were going on. And uh, it was really, really fun. We had a great time. And then it got to that point in the party where the, the party turned. And I, I got out of there. I mean, you know what it's like when a party turns. You know when you're at a party and it kind of kicks into the next mode? That, you know, when, when guys at the party tend to care less about where they're peeing. Um, people start texting the numbers you know I know you know about, you know those numbers. Um, When the music changes from disco to hard trance. Now, not all those things happened at the party I was at. Some of them did, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, At that point, I'm like, okay, good night. I rode my bike home, made some spinach and lentils for dinner, read my book. I mean, I (laughs) I had a shower and I was in bed with clean sheets by 9.45 p.m. It was brilliant. I loved it. Oh, uh, <laughs> my life. Anyway, let me tell you about my guest today, Ray Thistlethwaite. He is best known as the singer, songwriter, and guitar player behind the very, very successful Australian pop band, Thirsty Merc, who had massive hits with Someday, Someday and In the Summertime, which you may know better as the intro theme for the enormously successful documentary series Bondi Rescue. Yeah, that song. Now, Ray, he is just so much more than that. He is one of the most accomplished jazz keyboard players around he has written or co-written songs for some of the biggest names in music and in fact thirsty Merc wasn't his first success no he was signed to columbia records went to new york to make an album at a big studio when he was just 18 years old he tells me the whole story of that adventure in this show some of the details of that story he shares for the very first time they're going to blow you away it's a remarkable story a story of dedication nerdy jazz The perfection of pop music, getting everything you ever wanted the first time you tried and then being served a freezing cold shower of humility. Um, Ray's new project is the same as his Twitter handle, at IamSunRay, I-A-M-S-U-N-R-A-I, follow him on Twitter, just Google Sun Ray, you'll find him, you'll find his music. His musicianship and sense of melody and hooks and what makes a great pop chorus, absolutely undeniable. We do, get quite annoyed, we do get quite nerdy talking about jazz for a bit, but hold on, there's stories of shenanigans of female British university students to follow, don't worry. Ray was really open, really generous, really honest in this chat. I can't thank him enough for that. His transformation, both personally and artistically, is just remarkable to listen to. There's a lot of lessons in this one, my friends. Um, Now, I do have to offer some very, very, very humble apologies for the audio quality of this. The uh, SSD drive in my MacBook Air was slowly dying when I recorded this, and it affected one or two podcasts that I've got in the can, and I've since moved to a far more robust recording platform, but um, it's just a bit glitchy, some of it Uh, If you can't listen to it, I totally understand. Try to imagine me and Ray that we're talking on a dusty old record, if that helps. It does these up a few minutes into the file, but throughout the show, it did happen. I, I ran it through all the signal processing I could. This is the best I could get it. I hope you can see past it and enjoy this wonderful, honest, and uplifting story of transformation with Ray Thistlethwaite. Ray Thistlethwaite, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks. How are you, Washer? <laughs> I'm really good, man. <laughs> I am Sunray Rai on Twitter. Is where you are. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. And at uh, Facebook.com/slash I am Sunray. It's where you can find Ray Thistlethwaite. I'm finding him across the table from me. Here in beautiful Sydney, we are both um, semi-residents of this city and another one. That's very true. Um, It's great to get back in touch with you. It's
4: sort of nice that I got back in touch with you through uh, this very podcast, actually, and um, listening to a very inspiring podcast um, between you and Yumi Steins the other day. Uh, I must have seen a tweet or something about it, and just thought, you know, two names in the one tweet sort of was enough to me, for, you know, enough to make me go and open the link. Then I found myself here and um, listened to a very uh, candid and and uh, informative and uh, a little bit sort of. Uh, You know, homesickness-inducing uh, and nostalgia-inducing uh, podcast, and yeah. it was just fantastic to hear it. And I sort of thought, um, I don't know, I just, I just, it was just great. I was lying on, I was lying on my back in a little rehearsal studio that I've been, uh, you know, renting out in uh, in uh, Echo Park in LA. And I just, uh, you know, it was good. Just zone <laughs> oh, out for man, half really... an hour and like listen to that.
3: And oh, I'm so happy.
4: Hearing about Yumi and her sort of northbound travels up yeah, there to how all these wild crazy no know, no places. No It was great. You know, yeah. Just,
3: she was a carny.
4: That's right.
3: Yeah, she was totally a car- well. I'm PNG really... and all that. Yeah. Bro, look, I'm really glad, I'm really glad you're on this because I, 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 I'm... I'm interested in people that inspire me, and I like talking with people that I find inspirational and people have done inspirational things in the hope that it'll inspire others. And you um, are a man that I first met, I'm pretty sure I first met you as a musician, but very early, early on, we started crossing paths at um, what was that recording studio in North Sydney uh, where I used to do voiceovers? Was it MCM or was it Song Zoo? Song Zoo. Yeah, right. Yeah. That bloke, he was in a pop band in the 70s. Yeah, Les Gok. Les Gok, he was in... um, Hush. He was in Hush. Yeah. Yeah, now he's got this gigantic (laughs) recording facility.
4: Well, I think he's actually sold his share of it. Right. Um, Still is in that business of music and TV for commercials and uh, TV.
3: But I remember, I remember early on after I first met you as a musician, mm-hmm. I opened some door in the wrong studio when you were in there yeah, uh, working and what I always liked about you was like, you've always worked as a songwriter and you've paid your bills and you've, you've put a roof over your head and put food in your fridge.
4: Well, you know, yeah, songwriter, composer, I've sometimes referred to myself as a
3: decomposer. <laughs> um, I, yeah, i but it's, it's, a tough it's a tough path to follow and you're still doing it and you're doing it successfully and it's great. It, it is a tough path.
4: Uh, yeah, the finance uh, side of that world can be very seasonal. Um, oh, yeah. I guess, you know, you wouldn't do something as crazy as uh, these creative paths if you uh, weren't really in love with the output of what you what you can do with this um you know you can when you create something that you're really truly proud of you know hear a final mix of it or um hear an audience at a gig singing back something that you've been part of the uh the conceptual the conception of you you sort of uh you sort of it's those checkpoints that make you realize that you're uh, you know, you're a hopeless addict to this sonic thing, you know? It's yeah. like hearing something back that makes you happy and helps other people get through their days is sort of a great motivation so when did
3: you when did you know how young were you when you know that it was when you knew that it was music?
4: Uh, well I always knew I was gonna do music when I you know, from the age that I knew anything really. Um, I didn't know that I was going to be a songwriter, but I always knew I was going to play instruments. Um, There were instruments lying around my house, and my mum is a classical piano teacher. Um, I only learnt recently she actually won a bunch of piano competitions, and my dad was always into playing bass and guitar in bands um, on the weekends, but his day job was as a high school language teacher. Um, So I was into jazz and blues and all that kind of stuff, but that was a sort of far away american art form um so songs was a way for me to sort of make it a more personal storytelling experience you know talk about things that were real to me um you know a girl at the bus stop or growing up in your teens and, and it was a way to for a sort of you know white kid from the suburbs in sydney um personalize some of the the keyboard and guitar jams that i'd, I'd had so i guess. And also, combining what my mum and dad did for work, words with the language teaching and music with the the piano teaching, songs seemed to be a culmination of those two elements.
3: Did you have a choice in learning piano or was it just like this is what you're doing?
4: Uh, I actually asked my mum, can I learn piano when I was four years old? um, And she looked at me very seriously and said, You seriously want to do this? And I was like, Yeah, I want to seriously do it. And uh, so we, we started doing classical lessons and all of that and I took that through until I was in year seven and uh, after I think the first term of that, my parents split up and uh, I sort of stopped doing the lessons as regimented at that point um, because it, my faith, faith sort of went out of a lot of things at that point.
3: As happened. My parents divorced around the same time. I was right. about 11. Yeah. About 11, 12. Yeah, I can't really I remember it to be honest. I can't remember 12, the, year the year it happened.
4: Yeah. Um I think my mum wasn't a stage mum she definitely wasn't uh you know my son's going to be a star at all but she knew how enthusiastic I was about music and music was always being played in in the home so at that point I I stopped doing the sort of more academic versions of the school stuff yeah you know, academic versions of the music stuff yeah. as in no, I, I wasn't was into...
3: AMEB board exams I remember yeah that. I wasn't
4: I sort of fell out of that scene a bit Um, and I guess in a weird teenage way of rebelling against it and uh, I was also playing some classical violin and trombone and that's kind of, in the years following that I started getting more into improvised music because I think it was a way to claim back some type of thing for myself because I didn't really... I was just very confused and I didn't know what was going on with these two adults who were supposed to be teaching me what the world was all about and they kind of couldn't get their shit together basically for a number of years there. So I just... All the other stuff almost fell all by the wayside but for some reason I think I'd been doing piano long enough even at age 12 that I, I figured that I didn't want to give that up. So... I started doing it but doing it in my own way and that's when I started listening to a radio station that was based out of 2MBS FM in Chatswood uh, called Stormy Monday, which was to, uh, a guy called Chris Rule and someone else were broadcasting a show on Monday nights called Stormy Monday and the theme song was, of course, T-Bone Walker's version of Stormy Monday and it was, was when I sort of heard that blues scale um, and the blues guitar and all that kind of stuff that I... Realised that you could apply that to piano, and
3: I remember the first time I found a flattened fifth, I was like, "Ooh, yeah,
0: <laughs>
4: pretty
3: evil kind of sound." You know, no wonder it was the devil's music yeah. for a while. What's even, that? yeah, I don't know. Not the flattened third; that's another thing altogether. But the flat what's crazy
4: fifth. is I, now that I'm thinking about that time in my life, I was also already into Iron Maiden. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I was being really adult by listening to Iron Maiden at that point um but then you know after i've seen them in concert a few times since i realized that there was a whole universe of kids that were getting obsessed with with the cover art of this weird skeletal guy eddie. and getting upset obs- eddie so
3: good Absolutely. so scary
4: i know and uh also all, all the proficiency of the guitar solos
3: and the <sighs> sort of complexity of the drumming and god you've heard you've heard the theme song to this show Come on. Yeah, I I have. The theme song of the show is a musician in Melbourne by the name of Toe Hider. And he's like an amazing musician. Yeah. And I've never met him in person. We have a true internet friendship. Mm -hmm. And I tweeted him saying, I'm doing a podcast. Can you do my theme song for me? I'll pay you. I just need it to be gallopy. And I need the opening melody to be performed as if it were shoulder blade to shoulder blade by two guitar players. He's like, done. Yeah. (laughs) And so you'll appreciate this. the, the riff to my theme song that starts this show is actually Osher, O-S-H-E-R, in Morse code. See that? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, um, it's
4: so great. The reason I bring all this up is because I remember one of the first times I met you, Osher, was when we were, um, probably not the first time, but one of the first times we ever got to chat was when, you were working, maybe it was early days at Channel V. Yeah, the
3: music channel, yeah. And TV.
4: I remember, it might have been Danny Keenan or one of those guys who was talking to me about you. But anyway, we got into a conversation about Iron Maiden and I was freaked out at how much you knew about Iron Maiden.
3: Steve Harris, mate.
4: Well, well, he, th- Steve Harris is Iron Maiden. He mate. wrote it all, the bass yeah. player.
3: He wrote the whole thing. Um, have you seen the documentary, Flight 666? Oh, I have seen that. Oh. Fantastic If you've not watched this documentary my friends It is nothing quite like watching The reaction of those kids in Central America Who are seeing this like grown men weeping Holding drumsticks that have been thrown out of the crowd And just And then they go play golf Yeah yeah well you know, you can't drink and do all that but I remember, partying for the whole life. When I we remember when we would play the Iron Maiden on the request show on Channel V, it was that when Slipknot was around. And I was trying to explain. You don't understand. The Number of the Beast was the scariest song a kid could know. It was devil's music. This is as frightening as it got. Yeah. And if you listen to Iron Maiden, if you had an Iron Maiden patch on your jacket or your bag, you were bad news. People would cross the street to get away from you.
4: Yeah, I remember how I got into Iron Maiden was sort of along those lines. I had a babysitter called Steve Lammy and he'd written Iron Maiden in the infamous Iron Maiden typeset on his homework book using a compass point and his own blood. (laughs) And I thought it was so cool that I... I asked him what was going on with this this band, and he said, oh, look,
3: I'll give you a tape, and I, that's how I got into that. I love that your parents left you with a guy that used his own <laughs> blood to carve Iron Maiden in his homework book.
4: And he also got me in a uh, back in black, uh, uh, ACDC, and it was those tapes in those sort of years... That these are were cassettes, my friends.
3: These are things cassettes, that yeah. Yeah, we would wear out. They didn't last forever. They had a shelf life. Uh, uh, they, they did have a shelf life. Um, and
4: it was those... Yeah, those that were probably also part of the inspiration of going to the dark side when my parents split, and um, probably one of the reasons that I, you know, also got into, uh, yeah, trying to get my technique on the piano up because these guys were all seen to be incredible fast guitar players, so
3: proficient. Yeah, and like not only like that's the thing the music was yeah frightening and gallopy and yeah everything was about warlocks it was and dragons thrashy and, shit. and oh. crazy and
4: mythical and
3: oh yeah man there was like imaginary chalices being held and everyone's yeah. like
4: gauntlets
2: and i was the really Midlands, I, was, I played a lot
3: of dungeons and the, dragons at the, the, the time ages, so it was, right it was between that and dio i was like i was all about it yeah was, and Ingve malmsteen was also my well, i
4: think friend. i have and D to this very day hey? No, yeah, really,
3: no joking. Oh, uh, right. I
4: used to say people used to go, "Have you got AD?" And I said, "Is that Advanced Dungeons and Dragons?" So, <laughs> bad
3: joke. <laughs> no, Chop that out of the interview. I should use that more often. So when you were, I was because I wanted to know because for me, I, I I played piano. I played guitar from when I was eight, and I, I learned piano. But for, for me, practice I could never. It was just not for me. So what was what was practice for you? Was Was it something you looked forward to, or was it just like I'm going to sit down and just get my left
4: hand? I actually think it was OCD. I think practice for a lot of musicians is sort of like a, a similar thing to these guys with, uh, you know, getting that ball in the basket, you know, the, the basketball. In, 100 free in the throws in a row. If I, I get to
3: 97, to, I have to start again.
4: It's kind of that yeah. sort of silly level of, like, getting it right. Yeah. Um, and you can become a slave to it. And uh, I think I just had this weird tendency to wanting to get it right. Um, and... It was a good thing and a bad thing. Um, it's given me some huge equipment to be a pretty rounded music uh, person to, to to have done a lot of that work. But I think I did that because I wasn't really much good at sport. I wasn't much good at schoolwork. You know, my dad taught at the high school I went to as well, so I was one of those weird kids who had the, the, the dad weird. on the staff. I mean, they were always just teased and like I mean I knew the other kids who had other parents on the staff and I uh, they were just the weirdest kids in the school you know they just had issues (laughs) and uh I was sure that I didn't have issues like them um but you know when I guess when when Because of that sort of thing as well, I'd hear my dad talking about other staff members after work and, you know, it it sort of gave me this insight into these teachers on a human level where I sort of didn't have as much maybe respect for these other people because I knew all the ins and outs Uh and he wasn't bitching about them. He was just humanizing them for me and making me realize that there's more to it than just these people that you listen to and you just got to shut up when they tell you not to talk. You know, most of these guys smoked cigarettes. Yeah. A lot of them had relationship problems. Um, some of them, you know, were gay and no one wanted them to know about it. Um, and in this kind of sort of – it was a you know, private all-boys school and, and my dad was a teacher and I was sort of thrown in with these kids, most of whose parents were earning a lot more money than my dad. Um, so I was in an environment which was kind of strange anyway in a lot of ways. Um, and I guess that made me a little more, uh, recalcitrant toward the teachers and a little more when my folks broke up, I sort of thought this school thing's kind of not for me really. Um, that said, I stuck it out at school. I st- stayed there, you know, till the end of high school, um, somehow graduated by the skin of my teeth, sort of. And uh, I think my reasoning for staying there was because I I enjoyed the social side of school. You know, it was great to um, have a group of mates and sort of float in and out of different groups.
3: Um, I can totally relate. I I was shitty at school, except, except for music. And I loved going to school because I was in band practices before school and I was in... Barbershop quartet on Monday, orchestra on Tuesday, stage band on Wednesday, mm-hmm. uh, jazz combo on Thursday, and it sounds like you had a good school too. Like know. every morning, to, yeah, every morning I was playing bass. If you're into music, that's that's it's all you've got. And it's, lunchtime as yeah. well. Yeah, true. Lunchtime jams. True. It was all about lunchtime jams. Did you have a high school band? Um, well. I met a guy called Ed Goyer
4: who i sort of attribute as my first musical mentor. He was in year 11 when I was in year 7. And my dad actually knew about him because my dad was teaching at the school and he was playing drums in the high school band. And um, he was a good drummer. And my dad suggested we jam. And uh, he was one of the first guys I knew that was actually out there playing gigs. You know, he was doing gigs in pubs. And by the time he was sort of probably finishing year 12, or maybe even at his first year in the Conservatorium, he'd gone on to study uh, jazz vibraphone and drums and and some piano as well at the Sydney Conservatorium. Um, he had a band that, in his words, every time they were doing gigs, the grooves were slowing down. And uh, they were really into James Brown and this kind of, funk thing, and that, there was also a big, this is going back, you know, there was also a big uh, buzz about acid jazz at the time. There was a band called Directions in Groove.
3: Dig, yeah, they were yeah. amazing Australian uh, um, jazz band. Yeah. and uh, I would, Every time they played in Brisbane, I would just go and just watch Pie play. Absolutely. the drummer, Terrapi. Yeah, just like, oh, he
4: I was know, probably it's... my first, you know, I remember getting Terrapi's, uh um Autograph, wow. you know, after watching him play, after Max Roach, who was an incredible jazz drummer, um, play on the Sydney Opera House steps. And, you know, I wasn't starstruck by anyone really, but when I walked up to, I hadn't met anyone of note,
3: but I was starstruck by a guy like Terrapi. Um I just watched him and Sam, I think, when was the bass player, Sam name. Dixon. I just watched them play together and go, oh. Like, I know. That can happen. Because whenever I played with the drummer, it was never like that.
4: And yeah. I would watch those guys and I'm like, what? I know. <laughs> Rhythm section from hell. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, Ed Goya said, look, the gro- grooves in my band are slowing down every time I play. I'm thinking of sort of busting the band apart maybe and getting a new band together and uh, having you on keyboards. And um, I joined that band and we ended up doing gigs all around the – Um, Northern Beaches mainly, you know, Narrabeen Sands. We had a gig on New Year's Eve there. I was sneaking into venues at age 16, playing with these guys in real venues. And there was another couple of his friends who were pretty much all studying at the Sydney Conservatorium. And they were sort of the guys that taught me about jazz music and and taking this blues improvisation to the next level, Um, where instead of just playing around the blues scales, I was adding more chromaticism to it, you know. The black notes, and and uh, adding, you know, more of a sort of theoretical um, system to what was really going on, and then furthering developing my, my ear.
3: So I, I when I studied music um, after high school, I um, I did one year at a uh, TAFE, of. Uh, like how you said tife. TAFE, <laughs> I went to TAFE. Uh, it, was, it was the only tertiary education I could get into, but I remember we had a um, uh, we had a, a theory teacher that uh, had gone to Berkeley, and mm-hmm. um, he, he started to explain chord functions and things like that to us. And I remember, like, just on the edges of understanding and conceiving it, but I just I kind of got distracted by beer and girls at the time, and so.
4: Well, that's what happens
3: when you're in those teenage years. 19, And that man. doesn't
4: really slow down. No, no, no,
3: no. But I do remember, I was just actually, it was, it was during that year that I just really related to when you said, I just wanted to get it right, I just wanted to get it right. I was playing, at the time, I was playing a five-string and, and a fretless and a double bass. And I remember, like, when it came to practice, like, I'm going to play Portrait of Tracy from, from Jacob Asturias. I'm going to learn how to play this. Landmark fretless bass yeah. thing. Yeah. It's like, it's like I'm going to learn how to play "Eruption" from It's all this like left tense handed, and weird harmonics. Yeah, it's all harmonics. It's, it's yeah. all harmonics. Yeah, yeah. And man, man. I remember, like, I'd go, oh, "I'm going to play this," and at two o'clock in the afternoon, I'd start.
0: <inaudible entropy> Fuck it up.
3: And <inaudible> <mumbles> then, like, it'd be nine p.m. Yeah. And I'd be, why am I hungry? Yeah, I And so I've been doing this for seven straight eight hours. Yeah. And I, they didn't last very long, unfortunately. It only lasted like two or three months that I was in that zone. Mm. But you seem to continue in that. And, and I, I, I wondered, like, I, I knew that if I kept pressing with that kind of practice and that kind of just woodshedding, because like, whenever I did any kind of improvisation, I kind of gave up because I had to put too much thought process in what I heard in my head just to what came out of my hands. Do you remember the day when... You didn't have to think about what came out of your hands. It just happened in Uh, that moment. Oh,
4: I don't know. I don't know if there was a point where I had any breakthroughs. There were certain breakthroughs, you know, you'd crack the code of certain things, but it was usually either because you'd made a mistake and stumbled on a new area, which just sounded weird and sort of wrong, but then you kind of rationalised it and, Built it into some kind of thing, um, and that's something that never really stops. Um,
3: but at some point, when your fingers get to that nimble, there's got to be like the two and two goes together when you sleep in your subconscious, and then you get up in front of the keyboards the next day, and all of a sudden, it's there. Um, yeah, like Surely I can remember one gig where you're like, "Wow, that was that solo was pretty good." If I do say so,
4: yeah, you know, I do. I do remember things working out, um, you know. Yeah,
3: I just imagine like that yeah. with jazz musos, there's this moment like in the last final scene of of The Matrix, where suddenly he sees all the numbers.
4: Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there are. I think it's sort of also just to do with on on the you know on the sort of jazz band stand. I guess it's kind of it is about having so much vocabulary there of ways to get home from a sort of point you go right out on the tangent for a while and sort of just being so kind of aware and focused the whole time that you're almost on a kind of higher plane of sort of uh focus where it sort of it, it does actually go into a creative mandelbrot set area where it's kind of almost so random that it's actually just it's pure creativity and that happens usually when you're actually totally hot in terms of your practice regime. Um, you're not distracted by anything. you are still got enough fire in the belly to sort of want to excel yourself and you've got, you know, a great bunch of guys playing with you that sort of are propping you up and there's good communication and, and all of that and the gig's going well, you know. Um, yeah, those things, that's when it all comes together in a jazz setting. And it's a very different discipline from playing pop music and Mm. doing something more organised and structured, which is sort of part of my world as well, which has been sort of, you know, another string to the bow.
3: Before we we get to the pop, can you just explain to people, what is it like when it's you on keyboards as a bass player, drummer, perhaps a horn? And there's an unspoken communication on stage. We're going to do another 16 bars. No one mentions it. It, mm-hmm. just, it just happens. It's, yeah, it's kind of, it feels
4: like there's a raw, there's, yeah, it's it's a very, um, you feel like you're just taking risks. Your sort of senses are heightened. And it's kind of, to me, when, it's, when, when jazz is really on, um, it's the most exciting music to me in the world. It's like watching... People think that, oh, well, I don't understand jazz. But I'm like, well, have you ever watched the outtakes of Will Ferrell? Or is it Farrell or Will oh, Ferrell? Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. Yeah. When he's on set and the cameras are rolling... And someone messes something up and he just runs with it and it ends up in the movie because the guy's improvising. It's, you know, I believe energy isn't made or destroyed. It's just sort of changes form and it's kind of channels from one place and you kind of organise it in a particular point in time and in a particular place in time. And it could be, you know, if that was taken into a sculpture studio, someone had come someone had come up with an amazing sculpture spontaneously. If someone was on a jazz bandstand, they'd be there'd be some kind of lick that the, the sax player had come out and the drummer would jump on a hit and it'd hit it hit you know at the top of the chorus and the crowd would go crazy and everyone's there. and And if you were on a movie set, it's the kind of point where there's that synapse, you know uh, electro electro strange neuron. Level thing that you know inspires a guy like Will Ferrell to you no. Know, I'm going to jump in with the timing of a thing that just came to me at no. You know at the last minute, and I'm just going to say it, and it works, and everyone's on that edge of their seat because this guy is prone to pulling those sort of things out. I sort of liken it to the the great stand-up comics, the great mime artists, the great you know uh, actors who know how to improvise. And that's sort of what jazz is. It's sort of, to me, it's a, it's a sort of pure um, knowledge base, rooted in a skill set that's kind of rooted in a pure creativity that's got all the possibilities open to you, and there's kind of no rules. And it's that's why, to me, it's it's the ultimate drug. And that's why I also think sometimes it's more fun for the people playing it than it often is for the people listening to it.
3: Well, a flow state that you're in, when you're on stage, when there's four or five people in this kind of collective decision-making process about where this music is going, and they're sort of in that moment, and all their brains are on that, that frequency that no one else in the room can hear, Yeah, and they're in that flow state. Oh, Sorry, man. I just, is that me?
4: I'm going to ask me. I'm just going
3: right. to turn that off. That flow state's addictive. It to it be really in that is. To be in that space where there is no membrane between the thought and the product. It really is. It's completely addictive. And that's why surfers just keep... That's why Kelly Slater can't stop surfing. That's it. He's in the, when he's on a wave and pipeline, he's not thinking... He can. He cannot predict what the wave's going to do. He can only be in the moment and improvise with what's given to him. And I think that's true of a lot of
4: creative people. I think, you know, if... if, if you know, for me it was like, well, I am going to be into that sort of addiction. I may as well make it something that can be... Um, you know, can help me and help others and not be destructive, you know?
3: So you're sixteen years old, you're working with dudes that are older than you, more worldly than you knew. I've I've done this and suddenly you go, Ooh, I'm with men <laughs> and the men talk about men things. But oh yeah, no longer is it a C90 with Iron Maiden on one side and back and black on the other. <laughs> what what were the what were the albums that were giving you going, here you go, Ray, get this into you. What were the records that were giving you? Uh,
4: well this is great because it, it is actually I haven't thought too much about what the seminal records were, but it actually, it, you, you're almost exactly with me on how this rolls out. Cause you know, you're obviously a musician yourself to, to be asking these questions. Cause in that band, um, we were playing a sort of mixture of James Brown song, you know, get up off of that thing, that kind of stuff, a bit of, uh, you know, uh, JJ Kale sort of stuff. And, a bit of um, James James Brown and a bit of the acid jazz sort of stuff to sort of emulate the the local heroes of (laughs) Dig and um, that kind of stuff. And then I got given a tape of Hotter Than July by Stevie Wonder, which came out the year I was born, 1980. And that's when I realised that I mean, at that point, being a bit of a little jazz elitist, jazz idiot at school, thinking I was above everybody else who was listening to Nirvana and all, you know all these kind I'm of. I'm here with
3: Marsalis. Yeah, Excuse I'm sort me. of
4: like I understand more than you guys do. Um, you know, I realised that there was a crossover between jazz music and pop music that could be done effectively.
3: We're talking yeah. about the Stevie Wonder record. Um, Hotter than, Hotter July. Hotter than yeah. July, with which has the two humongous hits, uh, Happy Birthday and also Masterclass.
4: <laughs> I love that Happy Birthday is one of them. It's true; it actually was a hit. Oh. And lately, and, and
3: lately I've been having yeah, a yeah, feeling, yeah.
4: Kind of of um, feeling. And yeah, it was just the kind of the the phrasing of the guy's vocal, the you know, just the type of soulfulness of the singing and the.
3: Before you even get to the fact that he can't see, and well, then he played the, all the drums. I know.
4: Now, at the time, I didn't really know that so much. I just heard the voice, heard the groove, and it was just absolutely irresistible to me. And it sort of brought back a time when I wasn't thinking about anything, which was in the time before that, you know, because this whole time I was learning to be a player, learning to be a, a music instrumentalist. and and a player of the instrument and also learning about the theory that went with it and trying to develop my ear. And that's all very sort of intellectual-based stuff, which kind of has all theoretical systems and all that kind of stuff. But it kind of brought back a time when I remember hearing songs like The Way You Make Me Feel by Michael Jackson and, um, you know, uh, Smooth Criminal, Michael Jackson... And, you know, Dragon the Land, you know, Tommy James and the Shondells. And uh, also Chuck Berry, you know, some of the grooves that were going on in some of his kind of rock and roll, the swing and rock and roll stuff, which was just total 12 bar blues, feel good music. And and this is stuff my dad was listening to. And also just the sort of compact melody writing of guys like, um, you know, Every day it's a- getting all down, down, down oh. last and faster than a roller coaster. Uh, love like yours. Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. You know what I mean? So I, I sort of realised that it doesn't have to be in a, you know, it, you can sing the, the same thing through each verse. It can have a brilliant counterpoint point sort of driven melody a la the Beatles, you know, and any of their sort of stuff. Uh, It can last two and a half minutes, make you feel fantastic, and still be, you know, have roots in absolute musical genius. In fact, I sort of started to realise that this sort of long-form jazz stuff was no more difficult than actually the, the craft that went into some of these great songs. And there was also the element about music that, to me, is... Is the one of the common themes in I think a great percentage of hit songs is that it makes you want to dance. And jazz came out of music that was dance music. It was the swing era was dance music. Um, It was the the EDM of
3: its time. That's how grandma and grandma, grandma and grandpa got laid. There was no other way they would meet except for dances.
4: It's true. That and alcohol. Yeah, (laughs) but that was the
3: only reason for them to be in the same place as singles. That's true. As singles, they just didn't um, collaborate. That's true. Yeah, so dance were where it is. And here we are, we're holding our bodies up against each other and nature takes its course and...
4: And it hasn't stopped. I mean, if you think about the real rock stars of the scene today, they, they are the, you know, the Paul Van Dykes, the Avicis, the Flumes, the, mm. the guys that get music that's rhythmic, that has a groove to it. Um, it it's kind of, you know, there's countless... Star- and, of course, that's not the only type of music that exists and not the only type of music that makes you feel something. But it was it's that sort of... Irresistible thing that you know sort of inspires involuntary yeah. re- reactions in people. Um, that's so obvious to me that that kind of brought back a kind of childlike wonder. And for, for at that stage, I'd been sort of thinking a lot about music and it just sort of broke through the clouds and and kind of brought me back to, to something.
3: So, what was the first pop that you really and kind of really dove into? As after that, um. I went back through the Stevie
4: Wonder albums. I went back to Talking Book. I went back to Inner Visions. Oh, man. um, Which were essentially jazz albums still. Um, And then a friend of mine, Virna Sanzoni, uh, introduced me to the music of Donny Hathaway and also a guy I was working with who used to be in a band with Tim Friedman who sort of ended up being a a manager of mine uh, through my first hilariously disastrous record deal with Columbia Records in the U.S. Uh, he had left a bunch of LPs um, at my house, and one of those was the soundtrack to Purple Rain. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there was also Alan Parsons' project in there. There was also a bunch of Steely Dan that I never uncovered until later on when I picked up a vinyl player again. Um, but, you know, back then I did listen to a bit of the Purple Rain stuff and there was a song on there called Take Me With You which sort of combined what I described as combining black and white music. It had acoustic guitars, which to me was sort of like a, you know, the the sort of uh, the singer-songwriter country music instrument and the acoustic singer-songwriter sort of instrument. But but that was going through this kind of... This kind of sort of yeah. soul groove like that kind of you hear on all the Prince rec- records and that was an eclectic mix that I kind of Prince, hadn't that, heard before. That record,
3: I think it was 26. I think it was 26 when he did that. Ugh, um, just yeah, right? And here's unreal. my argument about anyone that ever wants, I will fight you with sticks. Prince, like Michael Jackson would go into the studio with Quincy Jones, Lee Sklar, and like the Eddie Van Halen, the greatest session players on the planet, yep. orchestras and yep. the yep. Columbia Records budget behind him mm-hmm. and... um. He would oh, the, phone, the mystery phone rings of this podcast are fascinating. Do you ever get them? No, uh, no, I don't. I don't answer the phones. Not under the jurisdiction. to Answer in this. That's uh, not amazing, my amazing.
4: It's a pretty lovely. It's house, It's a isn't palatial it? warehouse apartment. It's here. pretty great. It's so, not mine. I'm this is saying. a little like go and make a cup of coffee moment for everybody. But um,
3: it's pretty good. Yeah. Um. So Michael Jackson will go into the studio with Quincy Jones. And the might of the Columbia recording uh, company behind him, and just a budget for orchestras for a month, and you know all the greatest session players money could buy, and ex-commodores and whatever playing Mm -hmm. in the rhythm section, and come out with um, off the wall, and come out with Thriller. Michael Jackson, I mean Prince, went in alone, and he came out alone with a master tape, and just hits like, (laughs) yeah, he's a one-stop shop. (laughs) shop. Um, Amazing. And honestly, and I'm sure you've seen him play. Someone I have. Who just, just the true joy of performing is what I see he seems to live for. Yeah. Why else would you play a three hour arena gig, take a half hour break and then go and play to the basement at five in the morning? Yeah. And then wake up and do it again tomorrow. I know. The, the energy level is just. I never, when I first heard the outro, it was the, for me, it was the outro guitar solo. Let's go crazy. Yeah. And I was like, what is that? Yeah. What, how? Anyway, sorry, I've just, I've digressed you. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's good. I mean, so yeah. But Prince, I mean, really, if you, know, if you haven't listened to that Purple Rain soundtrack, it, I, I look, just go and get it. And, and watch the movie. He course. filmed it at Paisley Park Studios, which he owned. He owned, owned the film company. He built the soundstage. He's 26. Yeah. I mean, he was a fiend at the time.
4: Yeah. Um I you know, and, and you know, not to detract from, the, from from what we what I learnt, you know, later on about Prince, um at the time again it was just the music and I, I I just uh was drawn to these sort of soulful uh pop songs, you know, written by these guys who were sort of steeped in jazz but you know, just I don't know, just that was a really exotic element to me. Maybe, yeah. uh, you know, maybe like the, the rest of the world looking in at hip hop, you know, to hear about what was going on on the real street. I had a sort of a voyeuristic excitement about this exotic style of music. Um, so that's what started me, you know, listening to pop
3: music. There's um, such a, a beautiful thing about a, a, a great pop song. I, I had to learn when I was at, at when I first started working radio at B one oh five I was playing in like weird funk metal bands where if it was in seven eight it was oh, it was only one it was only one beat away. It should be weirder. We should do it in five yeah. seven. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had a flute player. I played a five string down tuned out of C. Yeah. I was like Oh no, down to A. I had it down to A. <laughs> so my bass drum was like. But flat, I remember, flat. like, at, there was this one point <laughs> when I'm writing. I was, I was a terrible songwriter, but I remember, like, in the middle of the night listening to these, these pop songs going, actually, that's really, that's really, it's really hard to make a really good pop song. And that's when I first started listening, like, when I was listening to those Celine Dion songs, they were the ones, because I, fucking hated Celine Dion. And it's three in the morning and I'm playing a Celine Dion song when my beautiful girlfriend's asleep in bed and all my mates are in Europe having the time of their lives and I'm 20, <laughs> 22. Yeah. But and I thought, how hard is it to make a song that some kid, her mum, her, her aunt, her husband, their grandma and the bus driver all like at the same time? It's pretty hard. It is true. It's, it's one of the most strange.
4: Because I think just the fact that you, the, the sort of, You know, whether you're trying or not, the kind of auspices of pop music means that it's popular. So to get a wider range of people to dig it, you would think the only way to do that is to sort of water it all down, but they don't seem to be the songs that seem to really change the game. So you've got to sort of almost do the impossible. You've got to do something that's fresh and new, that seems to be relatable, that you need to do it very quickly and get all of those ideas across. You don't have a huge amount of time to say a thing. You've got a three to four minute or two to three minute emotional vignette to get out. And it has all been done before. So how do you do it now in something that's going to be relevant to society? That's not going to seem
0: clichéd.
4: And then... Now you seem to be putting so many different criteria on yourself, it doesn't seem inspiring to even start the thing anymore because you've got so many rules that you've placed on yourself. So how do you do it? Well, you just kind of learn a bunch of techniques but hope to not think about them and try and forget it as much as possible all the time and not be looking for it, kind of like the way you apparently meet the one. And you just know when you know and you kind of just grab a bit of inspiration and don't even know that you're doing it at the time or you sort of run with one little spicy cinder of an idea and just sort of let it run its course. And, you know, sort of practice it without overthinking it. It's kind of a weird... It's in another way. It's like the place you're supposed to get with jazz. You're supposed to have learned all those learn your scales and all of that. But on the bandstand, you're not thinking about that. It's like, well, they count it in like that. Ding, 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 Bass is walking that fast. There's no time to think about the scales. You just need to just roll with it. So it's kind of like when it sort of breaks through the clouds to that sort of point of pure creativity, it's kind of like in a sort of similar zone in a very different set of... Um, you know, set of uh, elements that 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 writing a, a pop song requires.
3: When did writing pop songs look like it was going to start paying you money?
4: Um, I never thought i I never knew how much you could make out of it, and I never knew you could make any money out of it, actually. Um, I didn't think that you could make no money out of it. Um, but I didn't know anyone who'd made anything out of it because I didn't know anyone who was successful in music. I um, I only realised that uh, you could make a living out of it when I already was making a living out of it. Um, and I'm glad that th- that's the way it was because I think if you sort of try and drive anything from a money point of view, it sort of almost ruins the creative elements of what goes into starting it in the first place. Um, And it's an interesting point because I did get used to making some money out of music Um, and like a lot of movie sequels, you know, trying to uh, recreate the glory of what happened on the first time, you try not to second-guess yourself, you try to second-guess yourself, you try to third-guess yourself and not third-guess yourself. It's almost impossible once you start doing that. And it's the very reason that almost because you were so willing to change the first time around because you didn't have any yardstick to go on that you often create some of your most um, inspired work.
3: you got your whole life throughout your first album six months throughout your second
4: so true. And, there, yeah, the, the other pressures are of sort of the business elements coming in and sort of, you know, um, tightening the, the sphincter on, on that creative. Uh,
3: so when did you – because I remember – I don't think – I was around. I don't know if I got invited to it, but I heard about some sort of Sony showcase where you were, you were really young. You were kind of pulled out at some Sony – Records um, uh, conference like, here's the next big thing
4: that's true actually I remember that it was at the Sidon Cafe and I was signed to Columbia Records as a solo artist and it was maybe 2000 no no it was, it was 1999 I think yeah. and I'd Left the Sydney Conservatorium, on which I, uh, I I was doing a uh, scholarship for jazz piano at the Con in Sydney, and I'd left there because I'd been signed up by this uh, amazing American record company, which is part of Sony. Um, Before you finish your degree, you're like, that's it. Oh, pretty much straight in there, and yeah, been kind of. I'd, I'd never, I didn't have a passport, I didn't own, you know. I didn't own any kind of performance clothes. I didn't know how to get on stage and hold a mic. I didn't, I'd didn't. i only played on the piano and sung a little bit at that stage. And I really was just a piano player, really. But, um, you know, a tape had been sent to these guys and they'd send it on to this other person and they'd been involved in this other thing and they, you know, had ties with the label, so they hooked up this deal. And I'd gone and recorded this album, which uh, was... It's, you know, it's, I think it was absolutely sort of embarrassing on a lot of levels musically, um, but it was, it was what it was. It was, a, it was my first attempt at trying to create something, and then that um, squeezed through some pretty, pretty bad management decisions and a lot of record label kind of manufacturing and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, it was during that period that they decided to do a showcase in Sydney for it and that must have been the thing you're talking about.
3: Yeah, yeah. But you went to the States to record that?
4: I recorded half of that in St Peter's at a studio. I can't remember what it was called. It's in Sydney, inner city in in Sydney. yeah. Yeah, inner city in Sydney. And I went over to do the rest of it in New York City.
3: You're 19 years old. Well, I was 18 years old. God damn, you're 18 years old. You landed in New York City to go and make a record. Yeah. What do you remember about that?
4: I remember walking around Central Park with a girl called Edith, who I'm friends with on Facebook, so, you know, I'm talking about you, Edith. Um, And she was a female uh, assistant engineer living on the Lower East Side with her dog and working, you know, every day for like six months. And she said to me, if I ever say no to a session, I will not get another job here for like four months or I'll just be canned because that's what we need to do in this city to work. And she was teaching me about what New York was like. She was 21, I remember it. And uh, I think her family was Puerto Rican. And the Lower East Side at that stage was... I remember pulling my wallet out on a street corner. She said, put it back away. And since then, I've hung out on the Lower East Side in New York a million times. And it's like, if you don't have a, a, a salary of 250 a year, you know, you can't afford to live there. So it's obviously changed, even in that decade. But um, apparently it was a really... Uh, I do remember it smelled more like urine... I remember there was a guy called Dmx recording downstairs. It it was at the same studio, Quad Studios, where Tupac got shot in the foyer one time. (laughs) One of the times.
3: Yeah.
4: It wasn't where he got shot dead. It was where he got got shot once, Um, and there was a cloud of pot smoke about a meter thick at the on the you know ceiling of every studio, and there were guns being placed on on uh, speakers and um i met erica bardu in there wow. i met D'Angelo in there i never <sighs> told these stories but uh, erica bardu came in with a a uh, a travelable guitar one day for, uh posing as a busker cuz she was friends with the producers i was working with who were a group of guys called full force who, who was like a kind of Uh, I guess they were like an 80s boy band funk band. Remember when they had those kind of Mm -hmm. funk collectives from the 70s and 80s? And they'd gone on to produce hits for people like the Backstreet Boys and, you know... They were sort of gurus with MPCs and they were total jokers and practical jokers and they were friends with everyone and they brought Erica up and she was hiding beneath her hat and she came in and started wailing this song deliberately out of key and then they pulled her hat up and they go, It's Erica Badu! And then, like, we're all there and I was like, What is going on? And she's there going, like, Hey, you know. She was beautiful, you know, and then I also remember seeing D'Angelo one day just getting out of the lift and I was like, hey man, and they were all friends with him and so, you know, it was a really amazing time and I remember going to London for a break um, and, you know, hanging out in Leeds with some university girls who just drank me under the table every night for three weeks and then going back and working at Sony Studios on, I think it was on 10th Avenue, and. One day I knew that Michael Jackson was recording there on the same day that I was mixing this record because I tried to go to the bathroom one day and there was a security guard outside the bathroom and I'd found out that uh, he was going to be doing a session in the same studio and I wasn't allowed to go anywhere near that, you know, and probably for good reason. Um, uh, And uh, I, I I didn't see him but i'm sure that that was the closest i ever got to uh to michael jackson wow in the same studio and i was i was having the album mixed by a bloke called mike peeler who produced pretty much everything Sade did and also produced and mixed um the Raw and the cooked by fine young cannibals wow So I was in some good sort of sessions and I'd learned a lot and that was the time that I also heard the album Bright Size Life by Pat Metheny because the engineer that I was working with um, and Jaco Pistorius played bass on that album along with Bob Moses. And so, you know, I was learning more about jazz all, all the way along but I was also having my first crash course in how ruthless this business was when the record label decided to... Shelve the album and not release it. Um, and I think that Sony showcase came about because the Australian company decided to do some type of joint signing or some type of Australian release version of this album. But I didn't really have a good setup in terms of the management, and the music was a little bit all over the place. And uh, so it
3: never really went anywhere. Um but that experience I'm assuming you said you didn't ever pass but that was the first time you tri- travel overseas.
4: Uh yeah not for that exact recording trip but yeah to to basically to just meet these guys for you know 48 hours come back and then the next time I went back yeah I was right, in so the but, studio But with when these you guys. came back
3: from that epic trip what was it like coming back to Sydney? Uh when the deal was over? I don't know just like what was it like when you got back and having been exposed to what New York City at its throbbing best is and at the, the face where you're around, I like, I have, this is a world that exists. I can stand in a studio and D'Angelo's there and I could write, I can have To be honest, I think I just
4: became the most arrogant little prick ever. I think I just thought I was amazing because, you know, I'd gone from getting a scholarship at the Sydney Conservatorium to, you know... Getting a hundred grand injected into my bank account by the biggest record company in the world, getting a publishing deal, you know, um, along on top of that. Um, So I was, and I'd gone and recorded in these huge studios with these mega producers, and
3: I thought it was all going to work out, I think. Um, you had no reason not to, man. That's how it had been going at that point. Yeah, eighteen, <laughs> nineteen,
4: <laughs> And it was probably a really good thing that it didn't work out because that definitely brought me back to earth. Right. Um, and it was also the thing that gave me some of the emotional equipment to not give up um, because... You know, it often doesn't go the way you think it's going to go.
3: But you, you, you're here. You're here in Australia. You're, you're about to go back again to Los Angeles to, to to. You still do it? Oh, absolutely.
4: Um, and yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I, I'm working on it.
3: <laughs> when, as 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 a songwriter, like, like are you? How much of your day do you think is I'm writing, and how much of your day is hustle? Um, I'm, I'm, it's
4: I'm thankfully getting more into the writing again after a long, long period of being quite disillusioned with it. Um, you know, obviously, there's been some of the most incredible. Um, you know, f- feelings of uh, gratitude and, and I feel, feel absolutely blessed to have had great success with Thirsty Merc over the years. Um
3: and I love slow... I, I did that voiceover for Bondo Rescue for seven years, man. I listen to that oh, song every week. Every week. Sorry that yeah I No I love every time, man. every single time I heard that song, the opening uh the opening few bars of uh the Bondo Rescue show is uh it's a show about the lifeguards in Bondi Beach, and and Ray's Ben 30 Mark did the theme song for it. Every time I heard it, I was like, Ray's getting paid. Good. <laughs> it just made me feel good. It made me feel good that they were using your song for that. Well,
4: yeah, it got me out of a rock and hard place a couple of times. Um, so yeah, I, I spend, um, you know, I'm trying to mix it up with hustle and songwriting. I, I sort of shouldn't. I wish I didn't have the weird gene to want to be involved in sort of other parts of it because I think it it takes away from the business people's role a lot of the time. I think, I think that's one of the mistakes I've made is sort of try and be a business person as a musician. Um, that said, the guys who don't have a business understanding get eaten alive out there on another level. You know, they can have all the success and the deals that they get themselves into are just, you know... There's literally people out there that are topping the charts that aren't making a cent out of it. And I, you know, have always tried to, you know, stick up for the artists doing all right out of it because since, you know, even Stevie Wright from the Easy Beats, you know, um, you know, probably got into deals where he wasn't privy to all the fine print. And... uh everyone else did great out of it and I don't know if he did I don't know I'm not sure I'm not, I don't know whether that's a good example I don't know the Bill outs, Ward from but,
3: Sabbath Bill Ward from Sabbath on salary
4: absolutely and yeah. you know it's just Ronnie Wood's on salary yeah and I mean I call me biased but that my position is the artist so I I stick up for the business side for artists I think that it's one of those um things that it's really up to you to make sure that, that that's looked after properly and Um, you know, if you want to be super successful, there are egos involved and you need to basically let people do their job properly. Um, and being a bit of a sort of micromanager, it can sort of get people up the wrong way sometimes, I think. Um, but I'm learning to deal with that better than ever before because, um, I'm a bit older and, I think I've got a bit more humility than I used to have and that's something that I'm working on and I work on through my life.
3: I've said it on the show before but one of the things that I've had to learn is that um, you've got to find humility because if you don't, humility will find you. It's true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in not so nice a way. It's way better to find it yourself. Yeah, way true. better than have it thrust upon you. Yeah, true. It's very very difficult when it's thrust upon you. I've I've had to, uh, I've certainly had to. But the lessons that I've learned through that have been, yeah, I'm grateful for now.
4: And I mean, what Jeez, you, you realize in time. what you realize in the music game is that you know, as someone who's I've I've seen, you know, I've had a very small taste of what being an M-grade celebrity is like. Uh, I've known people who are A-grade celebrities, um, A-list celebrities. Um, I've sort of made some money in the game. You know, I still fancy myself as a jazz musician on a lot of levels, so, you know, at least even being able to kind of put together a pretty good... Uh, you know, living from making my own music and um, also being, yeah, all, all the kind of things that I've done to this level have, um, I've lost my train of thought here. can't remember what I was going to oh, say. Oh,
3: it's all sirens. It's the inner city of Sydney. It's, uh, yeah, it's a hot sirens. summer's day in Surrey yeah. Hills. And there's uh, sirens and things going on. We were talking about humility. That's right.
4: Yeah, yeah. You were talking about humility. Um, yeah. And it's funny how sometimes in the in the u s humility is seen in a different way um from the the way that we see it sometimes in australia um, how so well it can be sort of a, there's an el- a negative element to humility sometimes or hump being humble mm. um, I don't know whether it's the u s or it's just there's a sort of an element of sort of People who are deliberately like that, that sort of there's an almost an arrogance that comes with it on a level or something. I don't
3: know. I think we um, as Australians can perceive the American thing as arrogance, but actually, they're just you know, it's like Shane, Shane Warren. You can say what you like about Shane Warren, but if he says, I'm the best spin bowler that ever lived, you go, Well, yeah, you are, because he's just got the clout to back it up. Right. His, his stats don't lie. And so. I had to learn, like, when I first started going to America, I had to learn when people say, so what do you do? I would mumble into my hand. Into yeah. Religion. Yeah, it's what What, do, what do you mean? Because oh, here, you know, I was too afraid to say. But there I was like, oh, I don't, I do idle. You do idle? Hey, everybody, we are the Australian Seacrest over here. Yeah, uh, yeah. And people are right into it. That's true. It took me a while to realise that the way we think of success in Australia may not be the most healthy way to think of success. I'm not saying the American way is the most healthy way. I'm sure there's a fine balance between being proud of what you've done and being arrogant about what you've done.
4: It's true. There's different sort of... It's just kind of like different, you know, little cultural bents on, on the same sort of idea. I think, I think uh, this whole area of getting into this side of the, the whole thing is... I guess I'd like to say that for me after the, yeah, that's that's where I was going before the sirens went off. Um, yeah, you know, I've been really lucky to have really tried to get in the trenches and, and, and tried to, um, and and at least been privy to, whether it's me and experiencing it myself or just being, you know, a, a voyeur to it, the ideas that come with being in the music industry of, of you know, fame and uh, money and, and ambition and drive and all those sort of things, and then the personal journey side of it and uh, the creativity and the the long haul of sustainability and all that kind of stuff. It's great to have known that your you're sort of driving reasons for doing something can evolve to a bit more of a balanced place. Um, you know... There were chapters where it was about making some money. There were chapters where it was about, wow, this fame thing's really weird and wonderful. Like, everyone in the world in the entertainment game is a bit sort of, a little bit, um, we're all a bit intrigued by this idea. And Hollywood's obsessed with it. And the people who aren't in Hollywood are obsessed with Hollywood. What's this all about? It'd be cool to have known some people in that game to just kind of reconcile what this weird thing is. And to sort of have, not just kind of look at it on a way, but to actually have experienced part of it and seen other people go through it, to know your own standpoint on these things and to have sort of gone, well, what's it like to make money and does it mean anything to you? And some of these kind of things do evolve to a more balanced viewpoint. To, as, you, as you get older, what I love about it is that you kind of, you start to want to get paid in a real range of things. And, and I said to my manager a while back when I was sort of um, thinking about going over to the US, which I've, I've been living in LA for a year and a half now, um, you know, and coming back here to do various things, Um, But I said to him at the start of that sort of chapter, because it felt like, you know, Mm because there was a geographical move, I felt that there was a bit of a headspace shift that I needed to kind of furnish everyone with the idea. And to me, I want to be paid in job satisfaction, karma, not losing enthusiasm. I want to maintain enthusiasm. I don't want to fall out of love with this thing. I would love to be paid in some money, and I, I, I want some recognition for, you know, just being part of it. I don't need to be at the top of it. I don't need to win it every time. Um, and to me, having those sort of range of payments would be better than getting an, an unhealthy balance of or an unhealthy weighting of one of those. So it sort of seems to be a bit more of a, you know, a holistic version of success that you cannot know about when you're 21. Um, or for me, I, I, I don't think I could have known about that stuff because I just wasn't emotionally mature enough to understand what those concepts were. And for me, the greatest shame would be giving up music, um, listening to the, the sound of a piano chord, and going, that doesn't do what it did when I was eight years old. That would be the saddest thing. Um, And you need some money to, you know, eat, get along and do what you do. Um, And, you know, and when I talk about recognition, it's sort of like not in a fame way that people who don't even know who the hell you are and really what's going on about you inside are making their own judgments about you because that's just a load of crap. It's sort of an illusion, really. The people that you rub shoulders with who are in your little group of people who you kind of go, hey, you know, it's like if you were having your last supper and you look around at all these kind of guys and there's, you know, there's your sort of peers. I think you'd be there. (laughs) You'd be (laughs) emceeing the whole event, by the way. But, you know, there'd be some, some people there. There'd be, you know, Ed Goyer that, you know, it'd be like at the end of Deconstructing Harry when all those people there, you know, Woody Allen walks back in and there's all the people who in a good or bad way have sort of shaped his sort of history
3: yeah.
4: um, are there sort of clapping, going, hey, you know, it's all right, we're all here and we sort of survived yeah. somehow. We've all been part of this hilarious movie of your life. And, you know, just there going, those kind of people around you go, hey, you know, he's just part of the kind of group of, do fighting the good fight and for me it's fighting in the good fight for me as a musician is you know it's we're using sound to you know get ourselves through it's like we're getting we're getting ourselves personally through our families through and we're getting our the people out there that need a leg up through that's kind of what you know to me it should be
3: it's communication yeah you know, mate, mate. So that's the way you just described how you'd like to be paid has just because honestly, like I've I, I struggle a bit. I've been doing this a while now. I've been doing this broadcasting thing for half my life, mm-hmm. and a, exactly the same. I remember my a great program director, Craig Bruce, once told me if you ever turn the mic on and your heart doesn't beat through your chest, you should get out of the chair and let someone else do it. Uh, I get really afraid sometimes that might happen and I, I wish that it doesn't. Yeah,
4: like you're just going through the motions yeah. or something because when that red light on air yeah, yeah. is
3: on, you're supposed to be a little bit
4: yeah, nervous. Yeah. and, and I get of really off.
3: afraid that it's going to happen one day and that's a really good thing to ask for. Thank you for that. It's a really good oh. thing to, uh, to ask for that. And by
4: the way, me saying that that's what to, to aspire to means that I may still be 100 light years from getting there. Hey, progress but, not
3: perfection, man. True. Progress not perfection. And that's the key
4: to uh, all the creatives out there making music and all the people in the, you know, the business landscape making music and all the people going through the, you know, working at record labels that have had to deal with all the cutbacks and all the stuff. And that's even for the guys who are developing incredible technologies that on one hand might have seen to change the game in a bad way but are actually the most incredible technologies which have also allowed so much of this new uh, stuff to move forward at such a great pace. Everybody who's sort of dealing with all the change all the time it, it's just, you know, a work in progress is the point, I think, you know. Because, um, you know, what, what would you do if you just kind of knew it all and you didn't need to do anything else anymore? I'd just curl up and say, well, goodbye, cruel world. That's the end of that.
3: <laughs> well, I look forward to being uh, around to a view the, uh, the next chapter as you go back to Los Angeles. I'll, be, I'll get there on Christmas Day. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so I'll be there. I'm out in Venice, which is on the other side of the world from you.
4: Yep, I'm downtown.
3: Oh, it's not that far. Downtown's only 20 minutes from me. 10 West. Yeah, well, 10 East for me. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, 10 East. There's heaps of places I can charge my car down there. Uh, I haven't like downtown? Or? Uh, yeah, downtown. What have do you got? The... At least in Leaf, it's the greatest. Oh. I drive They're all miles. the rage over there. Dude, I drive 500 miles for eight bucks.
4: That's a, this is freaky. It's ridiculous, and
3: you place you can charge it for free in a lot of places. Yeah, for free. It doesn't Have cost you seen anything those new uh, Tesla? Is it? Well, uh, yeah. When I write the Mariah Carey song, that's going to be my car.
4: That seems to be a. Dude. The, that's the kind of car for the guys. They're, they're, that's for the software kings. Oh, oh yeah, who, and
3: those those who write those who write Mariah, Justin Bieber songs, and, and Mariah Carey songs.
4: Probably true.
3: Yeah right. Um, Ray, this has been amazing. Uh, we got super nerdy. You we got, did. You got real open. Uh, um, I didn't even get a chance to talk about... Oh, well, we'll do that next time. We'll do this again in Los Angeles. Let's do it. I am Sunray. Next time we talk about... Oh, next time we talk, um, I want to talk about your thoughts as to where all the bands have gone. I want to get your thoughts on um, who's doing the... Why pop is where it is and why EDM is where it is. Mm-hmm. Um I'd like to get you to explain to folks why Los Angeles. And um, I think that for now that'll do it. Um, yeah, you, can buy, buy, you can buy Ray's record, uh, facebook.com slash IamSunRay. There's a link where you can buy his record, um, Pocket Music. Pocket Music. Pocket music. Um, and you can just behold that, um, alongside, uh, Bootsy Collins and James Jamison, uh, Ray Thistlethwaite's left hand is one of the base, base players that you will ever goddamn here. That's not true, but thank you. Ray Manzarek style. He's all over it. It freaks me out. Freaks me out. Follow him on Instagram too, because he, lick of the day makes my day. <laughs> Ray does Lick that. of the day. Lick of the day. He gets a, he gets a double bass sample, uh, and he Instagrams a, a loop on his left hand and it's, it's bonkers. Um. I'm going to take your photo. I'm getting picked up in seven minutes. Um, Ray Thistlethwaite.
4: It's been an absolute pleasure, Osha.
3: Thank you for having me on. Thanks, brother. This has been really good. Yeah. All right. Thanks. And that's the show. Ray Thistlethwaite. Lovely guy, right? You can follow him on Twitter at IamSunRay. I-A-M-S-U-N-R-A-I. Tweet him. Let him know you heard him here on the show. Let him know what you thought of it. Quite the uplifting story, right? It's... uh Nothing quite like hearing about someone's transformation. He's such a great guy. And his music's amazing, I mean, really. And he can write great pop songs. Uh, pretty great. If you dug the show, if, if it's for you, I'd ask if you could tweet out a link to the show. That would mean the world to me. Um, it really makes a very, very big difference when you support me like that. That's uh, all I ask, really. Just do that. Oh, and go into iTunes and, uh, and leave a rating. That uh, makes a very, very big difference. Um, you can leave your feedback there about the show if you like. Uh, that'd be great. I'd love to see it. Um, feedback's a breakfast of champions. I listen to feedback. I act on feedback. I'm making this show for you. So uh, if there's something you want, something you don't want, let me know. I'll see what I can do about it. Thanks so much to everybody that uh, got in touch through the week and left feedback about Mia Friedman's episode. That was really ace. If you're new, hi, welcome. There's plenty of shows for you to enjoy yeah thank you for being here subscribe and i'll uh, talk to you next week my friends um, i think i'll still be in amsterdam by then either that or on a plane down to sydney dun, dun, dun. i love you thank you for being here have a fantastic week sleep well my friends and dream of beautiful beautiful things